and welcome to Hell on Earth, Appendix 7, The End. I'm Chris Wade. I'm Matt Chrisman. And we are here live on Twitch to wrap up this whole series that we've been doing the last, I don't know, 17 weeks or something like that. And really uh, a full, at least a year and a half for me, me and Matt. Uh, so welcome, everybody. Um, oh, so much reading, so much underlining. Oh my gosh, so many different colored pens. Yep, I had I had a bunch of different color. At first, I tried to color code my underlining, and I realized that was a little ambitious, but it all worked out. Yes. Uh, well, I wanted to start today by doing a little uh, can check with you all. I uh, went out and got some uh, German beer. This is a uh, Rauchbier from Bamberg. Uh, so that's what I'm going to be uh, sipping on today. I just have a seltzer, but it just it makes me think about how wildly dominant uh, German culture, like at the lived level of like food and drink, that kind of stuff in America is just German. But we've completely uh, wiped that out. You know, yep. like before before German immigrants showed up, Americans did not drink beer. Like they were not cracking cold ones to celebrate beating uh, the British. They drank hard cider, hard and cider whiskey. and whiskey. Yes, that was it. Beer came with the Germans. It is a German import to the United States, and now it is a defining American beverage. It's really wild how those four years in like 1914 to 1918 just wiped out any semblance of uh, German culture. I mean, I guess the Second yep. World War didn't help either, but, you know, yeah. uh, and I think it's no coincidence that those Germans who created in the, in the Victorian era are food and drink ways. Settled in the Midwest, our breadbasket. Yes, the, where all the uh, the beef and wheat comes from. Their their ancestral yep. foodstuffs. Yep, and it's like, oh great, we can just create a culture of fucking excess here in these <laughs> beautiful fruited plains, and then that became uh, American culture. What is freedom? Freedom is a little bit of chicken fried, cold beer <laughs> on a Friday night. I think too, and, and a cold one. I think to this day, uh, Cincinnati still has the largest Oktoberfest outside of Munich. They do, out of Munich, yes. Bigger than any other one in Germany, even. I've, uh, I've never been there as an adult, but I would like to go back. We should really play. I have been to Cincinnati. I have been to Oktoberfest in Cincinnati. And I got to say, it's mostly just they close down a stretch, stretch of uh, street downtown, and they just line it with eateries. And some <laughs> of them are German, but a lot of them are not. And there's beer, but. And there's some Oompa bands. It's mostly just a street festival, but it's fun. We should really book a show in Cincinnati, at least for you and me. Absolutely. Uh, we, I, I, we've been talking. We got to do the homecoming tour where we, yes. we cut from Cincinnati uh, up through Indiana to Chicago and Milwaukee. Yes, exactly. Um, but that's not what we're here to discuss today. Well, a little bit, you know, the German heritage in the Americas is part, is part of this whole story. But um, mm -hmm. I wanted to start today with a little... Um, breaking news 17th century breaking news uh you know just all of this stuff uh, you know the past is not dead it's not even really past we have uh two elements of this story that have hot fresh new news items this week uh so i want to start off with edward Habsburg, the uh the tweeden Habsburg. Uh, who many of you probably know from uh, online. This is something that I was pretty tickled that he did this year, which is a uh, March Madness of Greatest Habsburg's Leaders. I'm not sure. I don't know if you have your screen pulled up, Matt, and you can see this. Oh, let me see it. Um, 
I mean, if you pull up Twitch, you can you can see it. I don't know if I'm I can looking. Sh- share I'm looking. It. Who's he got? Who won? I, it's got to be Charles V, right? So this is his final four. He did male and female brackets. Uh, Maria Teresa in there? Yeah. yeah. So uh, Blessed Emperor Carl beat out uh, Charles V. He was the, the last one. He was the <laughs> loser Habsburg. He's the one who's got their fucking boot prints on his ass, and he's the top Habsburg? I mean, apparently, the people spoke, you know? Uh, the fourteen. how you know books. the Habsburgs are losers, and this validates my thesis about the, this guy's book that just came out. We'll get to that like, in a second, because that's the real The yeah. failure of the Habsburg dynasty. Charles V uh, at least was like, he was building. He was, you know, he failed, but he, he's, his reach was so titanic. Come on, how are you not going to give it to him? Uh, and then in the uh, ladies bracket, we got Empress Maria Theresa with a blowout, almost by 20 points over yeah, Empress Zita. Yeah, we know Felix would have picked the hot one yes. from the late 19th century. She was an, was she an actual Habsburg or just married into it? Uh, I think she was a Habsburg. Uh, so the reason I bring this guy up, A, because the March Madness is funny, but B, he has a new book out this week uh, called The Habsburg Way. Make love the Habsburg Way. Yes. Uh, seven Rules for Turbulent Times, uh, which is a book of life advice that you can get from uh, reading the history of the Habsburgs. Yes. Uh, um, and I bring this up because Matt actually read this book and reviewed it for Slate.com. I this did. Is Matt's, they uh, reached out thanks to the bra- the strong Habsburg-related brand that we have for this show. Uh, this uh, is Matt's first byline in my old alma mater. A real Chris Heads will know that I worked at Slate for many years. Uh, but Matt, do you, do you want to give us a little preview of this uh, article? What you learned from what we can learn from the Habsburgs? Okay, so the funny thing about this book is that it's a fusion in its presentation and pitch to the audience of 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson and Mark Corrigan's Business Secrets of the Pharaohs <laughs> because it wants to both be like life advice, as he said, for troubled times or whatever the fuck. Uh, but he also wants it uh, to be like how to succeed, you know, at your career, like in life, like more broadly than that. And 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 th- that means he's doing the thing that Mark Corrigan made. They made fun of in Pete show, which is try to get business secrets from, you know, historical figures like how, how Attila the Hun will teach you how to run your HR department that kind of thing. <laughs> with brutal reprisals. Yeah. And so. It's both of those things, but the real pit twitch twist is it's really neither of those things. That's just a front. That's just a way to get you to buy it. What it really is, is a pitch for uh, the government of Hungary, the Orban regime that he works for as ambassador to the Holy See, which is one of the most no-show jobs in diplomacy. You got to show up for the Vatican uh, fucking bingo night. <laughs> like there is no, you're not doing diplomacy with the fucking uh, Pope. You're just there to get your picture taken. So he, but he worked, he is the Hungarian ambassador to uh, the Vatican. And so he is pitching Orban's hunger. That's really what the book is a pitch for. Uh, well, good, good luck to Edward for working that out. I did. I don't have a picture of him, but our other favorite current Habsburg is uh, the race car driving Habsburg. Yes. Um, vroom, vroom. Whose name is uh for let me just look this up Formula One? It's Hats. he's a Ferdinand, isn't he? Ferdinand, he's Ferdinand Habsburg. He's one of the Ferdinands. He That's is. That's what the Ferdinands do now. They used to rule Europe. Now they ride around in a little circle. Uh, he is twenty six years old. He actually kind of looks like like a Timothy Ch- Chalamet. That type. seems about right. Yeah. 
and he is a Formula One ra- race car driver. And in my mind, race car driver or DJ are about yes. the the best, most noble person. If you find yourself born into a ancient European dynasty in the 21st century, like absolutely, those are that the things. A moral decision. Those are the things where you're not hurting anybody other than maybe yourself if your race car goes off the track. But like even Edward is not really like that menacing. It's not like this book feels dangerous. It's very <laughs> pathetic. He's like he's tugging at your call. He's tugging at your uh, sleeve. He's desperately wants to be liked. He gives all these like winking. He he he's like oh of course we love multiculturalism. Uh, the, the the Habsburgs ruled over a multicultural empire. They did a great job. It's like yeah, tell that to Gavrilo Princip. <laughs> I don't think that that really went that way. Okay, buddy. Okay. But so the book is divided up into these rules for life, and and they're all pieces of incredibly uh, advice that is so broad it's banal, or only specifically referring to like if you are a 17th century uh, monarch in Europe, this is what you should do. So like some of them are just like get married. One of them is uh, be Catholic, which gets two chapters. <laughs> Uh, but other of them are like, be brave in battle or have a great general. And it's like, okay, how many people, all right, how metaphorical can we get here? Where are we getting a general from if we're not actually having a, a war? Like, how, do, how can we make this advice meaningful? And other of them are just like t-shirt slogans, like believe in the empire <laughs> and die well, <laughs> which is kind of metal, but he mostly means like, make sure that you've, you know, given your affairs in order. Oh, okay. Yeah. The, the, you've been, you've, done enough piety you, you've been a good enough catholic um well you know dying well i think in my mind also means he's a poor i mean okay fine he's not formula one i've seen in the chat people correcting me i don't know the no, difference between cars he he drives fast cars in europe that's yeah. all basically formula one you know it's I, like a formula three which is like it can't go as fast and it's less dangerous uh didn't know is harlan crow is that what he was invested in when we just talking yes, about formula that formula three yes yeah Basically, uh, uh, overpowered go karts. Yes, um, I believe Felix referred to that as Millhouse Ass Racing League. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, I was thinking about speaking of dying well. You know, one of the lessons that I would take away from this series is, uh, you know, have your succession in order when you uh, when you go. Which is one of the things I was thinking about re- watching the last few episodes of, of course, Succession. It it's is indeed. For the, all the master of the universe uh, stuff that Logan uh, fancies himself, uh, die, croaking on the toilet without your line of succession in order, uh, that's a fail. Yeah, he failed epically there. Leaving, yes. leaving a, a, ambiguous documentation, this is mm. not good, man. That's not how you do it. Uh, thank you to RyeGuy0001 for pointing out the way to die well is to subscribe to Catholic Cemetery Monthly. Yes, yes, exactly. That's how I you know that. that I when, think that Habsburg would agree with that because he's very into the Catholic thing. Uh, so moving on from the uh, so this is kind of the the fate of the of one of our royal lines right now is uh, making a, a mediocre sub mediocre self help books to capitalize on 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 your name and your position and just begging for any kind of attention from the plebes. Yes, it's like I thought that the lions didn't care about the uh, the uh, opinions of sheep. This whole book is like, hey sheep, please like me. <laughs> uh, being on Twitter in general, you know. I kind of for one of our our, our appendices, I I almost thought about trying to get in touch and and score an interview with him, Mo, you know, I do a little like you know talking about the Habsburg legacy a, a lot, but I'd really it would all be a wind up to just be like, what does it feel uh, 
to descend from living gods and now just be stuck here on Twitter with the rest of us assholes making fun it's of you for being like inbred. You, you've been cast into the dirt. And so at that point, doesn't clinging to these memories and to these symbols more pathetic than anything? Yeah. And and also nars- and also frankly masochistic. Just let it go, brother. <laughs> All right, so moving on from one uh, dynasty featured in this series to another, uh, we have an update on the Jacobite line of succession. These are the <laughs> descendants of the Stuart kings of England. Uh, the and- proper and true kings of England, uh, Ireland, Scotland, oh, looks like- fuck you, France, and yes, the United States of America. So this is... Franz, Duke of Bavaria, who this week at age 89 uh, came out as gay and formally acknowledged what had largely been an, an, an open and openly known thing, his partner of 40 years, to which I say, uh, you know, ha- good job, buddy. You know, li- live your best life. I'm, I'm happy you can come to terms with this. Also, uh, you know, this late in life. Huge, uh, uh, huge suckets to the uh, uh, plastic patty royalists and fake Jacobites like Matthew Walter. Uh, I think honestly, uh, in a crypto sense, Ross do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Brendan Doherty. These guys were like, actually I re- the real King of England and the United States. Uh, those are the, the, the Stuart line. Boom. Gay guy. Yes. Boom. The, Annihilated. I, the, the Jacobite line of succession has gone woke. Boom. Uh, they got woke folks. They went woke. And by the way, if you might be wondering, why is the Stuart pretender a Wittelsbach? We know why, because James the first daughter married Frederick mm-hmm. of the Palatinate. Boom. Yes. Uh, so it does, you know, again, more power to him. His particular line of the Wittelsbach dynasty were anti-Nazi during World War Two, uh, And he has been very, very overt of being like, yeah, yeah, the whole Jacobite successor thing. It's a, it's a it's curiosity. Cringe, and it is. Of my legacy. I, I don't I don't have any like I, I'm not taking any of this seriously. Yeah, it's it's fine. So um, although it is funny and I think appropriate to acknowledge that the rightful if we are to to take a rightful king of America, uh, it yeah, it's is not one of those kraut up jumped frickin uh, Hanoverians or any of that bullshit. It is an 89 year old Bavarian gay guy. Yep. Uh, and frankly, I think we should pursue that at this Let's point. Let's do it. Yeah. How, how, we're not doing great otherwise on uh, none of those countries. Yes. Bring him, bring him, bring him in as king. We can finally separate head of state and head of government. Yep. Bring him in. Oh, He's God. Just get some of the pressure off. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it would be, uh, w- it, yeah, it, it no. could solve the dialectic between the anti-woke people and the, the, the monarchist trads. A woke, a woke Stuart monarch is the final synthesis of the whole Yes. Of the entire culture war that's ex- that extends back to the fucking Cavaliers and Roundheads. Yes, exactly. Uh, let's make it happen. Uh, yes. And congrats to Franz of Bavaria. Yeah, way to go. Way to live your truth, buddy. And Very his res- partner. Uh, I, yeah. Respect uh, to you. By the way, this reminds me, some people were a little annoyed that we didn't go into the Jacobites uh, after, at the last episode that we did. But it was already the longest episode we'd recorded. We didn't want to get it too overstuffed you you gotta cut it off with the glorious revolution because that's just a Uh, a clean end but there is this this attempt by uh, by the people around uh the stewarts eventually the son of james ii uh bonnie prince charlie stewart himself uh started organizing in ireland first in ireland where they were defeated famously at the battle of the boyne uh but then later in scotland uh and eventually in a, a system of like 
uprisings that were finally ended in the uh, the final battle at Culloden in mm-hmm. the 1740s, in which uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie's Highlanders are uh, massacred. Uh, and that leads to the Highland clearances when the uh, Scottish clans, the, the Catholic clans that were still up there in the hills were forced down into cadastral capitalized Protestant uh, UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that process of cleaning up included uh, one of the events that inspired the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones, which is when the uh, uh, Campbells used uh, right of uh, custom and, and uh, staying under someone's roof to massacre 30 members of Clan uh, MacDonald who had not yet signed loyalty to the new uh, Dutch uh, royal house. Mm-hmm. And to this day, there are signs in in rural inns and uh, in Scotland that say like you know no dogs and no camels. <laughs> I mean, I was delighted to find. Well, this is actually a good transition into our our next segment of like you know what what we kind of learned uh, individually doing this series um, because you know coming in, you know part of part of putting these things together is that I want to get the history right. I want to get our takeaway. Uh, right. I want to get our argument right. But of course, I also want to make a good story and like arrange things in a proper dramatic way. And, you know, going into this and you know, acquainting myself with the history, it was an absolute delight to learn that there is a red wedding in the hell on earth story <laughs> as well. You yep. know, the Iger bloodbath. Yep. Um, and I hope, you know, some people who are coming in who didn't know this history, you know, because I, I purposely tried to set up, you know, when when the death of Gustavus, that there is a kind of clearing of the decks. And now Wallenstein is in the position of power. And it is just too perfectly Game of Thronesy that then the beginning of the next episode at his height, that he should be able to run over the entire country is just him getting killed and his, his whole party yep. being killed at dinner and then him getting killed in his bedroom. Yeah, that's the real Ned Stark shit. Like yes. after uh after Lutzen, you're like, oh, Wallenstein is uh he's goaded. He's got the stars with him. His astrological his astrology is is perfect. It's on point. And then pff, guys run in and they yell, Who's a good imperialist? Halbert through and the guy. They guide. start stabbing everybody. So yeah, I want to talk just a bit now about oh no, actually that's not what we I want to do now. Never mind. I want to do uh corrections and clarifications first. Uh, things that we missed, things that uh, we uh, were were criticized for during the series. Uh, and I want to start this off with a note on pronunciation. <laughs> Suck it. Uh, yes, that is my note. Suck it. Uh, if you can understand, pronunciation is fash. If you can understand what we're saying, uh, then it is not mispronounced. And furthermore, I want to point out that uh, I grew up about 45 minutes away from a town called Versailles, Indiana. Uh, Matt grew up about 45 minutes away from a town called New Berlin, uh, Wisconsin. Uh, Which they changed the pronunciation of in the World War I. It used to be New Berlin. Yes, but you always knew it as Berlin. We are, uh, from our ancestral Midwest folkways, uh, uh, born into having mispronunciation a, a, dis, a disadvantage of uh mis of pronunciation of european names uh and to be mad at us about it is frankly to deny our our folkways you know it's true it's ableist too uh there were things that i did very much look up and try to get right that i still fucked up because uh, my tongue is bad uh there are things that i didn't look up and still fucked up because they are too stupid to get right like sir grotenbush which many dutch listeners yeah. inform me that they don't even call that they just call den Bosch. Which means the Dutch get no 
with your made up bullshit language. Your every Dutch word is a prank. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the it is the uh, fernet of languages. It exists to get strangers to say stupid things with their mouths because they all speak English and they all speak German, probably. And Dutch is like this weird hybrid of the two, a perfect hybrid of both of them. But like the phonetic, it's like phonetic German English. It's like they're making it up as they go along. Yes. They don't get to complain about pronunciation. The one that I will uh, throw Matt under the bus for is... um, I had gone in going uh, Magdeburg, and for some reason, Matt star- started with Magdeburg, and I assumed that Matt just knew better than me, because why else would you pronounce it that way? So uh, that, that one's completely on Matt. Ah, uh, uh, damn it. Yes. Uh, but you know, know what I we're saying. There, I thought there was a D. Yeah. Magdeburg. Anyway. Magdeburg. That's my note on pronunciation. Uh, you could figure out what we were saying, so it was basically fine. Yeah. Uh, the other one big correction, I, I mean, I was very much nervous about this whole series because, you know, it's a lot of deep history and you know there's we're, we're trying to get it right but also move fast so there's there's stuff that we could have gotten wrong honestly the most mad that anybody got out over a factual assertion that we did in this series was in the very first episode uh, claiming that Martin Luther was the first celebrity and the argument that or the counterfactual that we put out against it was perhaps somebody like uh, Julius Caesar who you could maybe see his face on coins, but you wouldn't know him in a parasocial way. And people were like, ah, that is incorrect. You could go and his speeches and books were read in the public forum and you could hear his words live, blah, 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 blah. I will concede the same thing. We're talking about penetrating the home. Yes. We're talking about a sort of notoriety, personal notoriety that penetrates the homely environment, mm -hmm. which no pre-literate society can do. Uh, yes. And I will concede that Caesar is probably the worst example that we could have picked for that. But I think when you're talking about the actual meaning of the word celebrity, it necessitates a kind a mass media, uh, the kind of which did not exist until, uh, Luther was around. And I know that's like kind of giving a tautological definition to the term, uh, but whatever it is the definition I have. You can't be a celebrity without mass media. You can't, uh, have mass media before the printing press. Uh, Martin Luther is the first celebrity. Uh, sorry uh, to all you Caesar heads out there. Um, I love the salad, though. Let me tell you. Oh, great salad. It's wonderful. You get the av- you, when they get the real anchovies in oh, there. The creamy, the fishy and taste, they, the tang. And when they and they they risk it with the actual egg yolk instead of, you know, just a. Have you ever seen the thing where they build that? up the dressing from the bottom of a. Uh, yeah. yeah. From oh, the bottom baby. of the bowl up. Mm, yes. Mm, yes. Uh, that's a good salad. All right. But I mean, not in the sense that, you know, it's good for you, which is annoying. Yeah. But uh, it's delicious. Anything else that you would like to clarify on? Yeah, uh, that uh, you actually jolted something. Uh, when we were talking about ha- uh, Charles V's response to the uh, early Reformation and why he didn't go harder, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I underemphasized one of the key things, which is that he required a princely cooperation. Uh, to militarily meet the threat of the Ottomans. Mm-hmm. That was the presiding concern. I mean, yes, yeah, the war, the, the Italian war is happening, but like the, the, the critical frontier of the empire was in Hungary closest to the rest to the, his German holdings. And that question of getting them to cooperate with military uh, uh, maneuvers against the Ottomans uh, was his overriding 
concern relative to you know what he needed out of his german lands so he pretty much was hand tied in dealing with the protestants if he wanted to have a viable military coalition against the turks so let me just put that in there now that's a a good a great clarification so now we're going to move into uh what we learned and what uh surprised us from the series i wanted to say to start the to start this that like learning about this getting deeper into this history was you know very very fascinating and um you know the further back in history you go the the kind of drier and more impenetrable things can be or can appear to be but the thing that really jumped out for me was kind of ways to get access to the um the minds of the people uh in the past and one of the things that came across for me is that Across all time periods, no human emotion for me is more recognizable and sympathetic than annoyance and frustration, (laughs) you know, because there's something uh, so eternal about not even anger, which can be manifest in different ways. You know, there there are the ways that like rage and anger manifest in, in the past that seem alien because it has to be constrained by all forms of manners and stuff, but people just being pissed off that things are difficult or not going the way they want to, whether it's like Luther with people not understanding what he's trying to do or Charles V with running his empire or John George with the, um, how stupid the prosecution of this whole war is and how nobody can get to a yes, even though it should be so easy. Like those are the emotions in these people that where I'm always like, I feel you, I feel how irritating it is to do things and whether that thing is running a Holy Roman principality or, uh, you know, mailing an annoying package for me uh, right now, uh, th- those are the moments of, of you know, surprising uh, syn- synchronicity that I find all the time. And, and th- that was one of the ways that I uh, that it surprised me that that was the thing that really jumped out at me uh, in this rather brutal story of, of war and desecration uh, during this period. Yeah, because. At the end of the day, most people just want to be in front of a fire wrapped in some sort of uh, skin, mm-hmm. eating, gnawing at a turkey leg, perhaps drinking a, a horn of, of, of ale, listening to a very loud brass band, mm-hmm. watching a uh, jester kick himself in the nuts. <laughs> that's that's the good stuff. That's what you're trying to get to. And then you got this war going on and you're just like, oh, God damn it. I got to put down my flagon and fucking deal with this. So that that was one of my big take, takeaways is that these these people there we're not so we're not, we're so, not different. so different you know there's and, a whole podcast about the, this era with that name yes uh, with Eleanor Yanega who we had on yes. uh, they just started a series on the Hundred Years War which um, oh boy. should be pretty interesting um, it's actually a little longer than that <laughs> that's the thing I love about the Thirty Years War right on there the yes. defenestration in eighteen. Uh, Westphalia in 48. Boom. 30 years. Yes. Uh, easy. Nice, clean, round numbers. Any, anything you'd like to put into the uh, the what what we learned uh, category? Something that I think I've definitely... Uh, I've gotten a lot of... I think I've gotten in touch with just like the, the psychic terrain mm-hmm. of the early modern world. Like the... What, like this, what it must have felt like to be pulled in those directions. Like towards an abstract like mediated sense of self relative to others uh 
connected to like a, a deeply embedded social life, you know, mm-hmm. an enchanted social world that has to now be fit into this new uh, brace, you know, shoved through this keyhole into a new like type, type of subjectivity. And, and the way that uh, print essentially creates a, uh, a gateway to fantasy and a, mm-hmm. a, a starts a process of uh, culture wide insanity making. Yes. I think we have some uh, some questions about that, so maybe we'll get in, into that more. Yeah, I mean, so it's kind of the same for both of us. Is like you can read the history, you can read the dates and who went where when, but really wrapping your head around the mindset of these people in a sympathetic way. And you know, Eleanor, yeah. uh, to reference her again, uh, you know, talked about that at the very end of our uh, bonus episode with her. Is that if she has one takeaway, is that you know, to 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 do your best to think of these people like us uh, yeah. and not uh, rubes deluded by a false superstition who, you know, spend their time arguing like, you know, fucking today is a perfect example. When you think about all those colloquies about colloquies about what 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 happens to the bread during communion or whatever and how important it is, uh, you know, I know nobody's taking it quite like murderously serious, but think about how much ink is being spilled. Digital ink is being spilled today around the stupid blue check marks. Oh my god! And think about you know, obviously that's energy. Yes, that, that that's that's belief. Like we are not any less enchanted than these people. Mm-hmm. We do not have any less of a supernatural understanding of the world around us than these people. The difference is is that our enchantments are all oriented around technology. Yes. As opposed to nature, mm-hmm. that's or, the difference between us and them, or an institution of of, of, a, of a church, which you know is a kind of technology of its day, you know, right? But I mean, like it's it's referencing a natural world that is understood to be natural and mm-hmm. beyond human control, versus a technological regime that the art the, the supernatural stuff comes not from believing in a god external to us, but believing that we are in fact God because mm-hmm. we have access to this technology. That's the, it's still a belief. Yes. It is still a supernatural world that you're living in. So, uh, and, and I really hope that if, if we've gotten one thing across through this series, uh, A, it's that this time period is cool and gnarly. Uh, Absolutely. And B, that, you know, these, these people are us and the thing that, things that we are going through now, that thing that we said at the very end of the series, uh, you know, that it's always the end of the world, um, is true. And even if our, our, present moment is more precarious because of the increased uh technology um the ways in which we respond to it are very recognizable in the ways that our pre-modern ancestors responded to their uh crises um absolutely you can see a lot of yourself in these rather foreign feeling moments of the past so yes with that uh let's move in to questions i'm going to be trying to do double duty here um because we've got some audio questions that people submitted as calls. And then I'm also going to be trying to monitor the chat and pull some questions out of that. So I'm mostly kind of going to be playing the calls and passing them off to Matt and then monitoring the chat and trying to pull some questions out. Uh, bear with me here. But let's go in uh, to one of the big ones. So big that we got many comments about it and two questions about it. So I'm going to play these questions back to back because they're both uh, asking aspects of the same thing. Oh, by the way, I'm seeing so many people say this. The soundtrack two things soundtrack will go live on Bandcamp, Bandcamp this wednesday uh along with merch um the whole show uh 30 tracks of soundtrack will be avail- available for purchase for five dollars 
All funds from the soundtrack will be distributed back to the audiences. Almost every track except pre-release things by other artists um, will be available for royalty-free if you would like to use them in your own projects. So soundtrack goes live on Wednesday. You'll see tons of stuff about that. Um, and we're going to debut a new, a brand new song about the show by Charles Austin at the end of this stream uh, and show you previews of some of the merch. So stick around. Uh, all right. Here are our first two questions. Hi. Uh, first time, long time. Uh, I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on the Brenner-Wallerstein debate and Robert Brenner's critique of the origin of capitalism and world systems theory. Thanks. All right. So that's the first one on it. And hey, Matt. Hey, Chris. You ended Hell on Earth with a story about the origins of capitalism. And this story was something of a synthesis between the Robert Brenner and the Emmanuel Wallerstein accounts of the origins of capitalism. My question is, what do you think each of these origin stories, the Brenner and the Wallerstein, got wrong? And how did you arrive at your own account? Cheers. All right. So I will give my uh, answer first because I feel like Matt will be able to go a little more in depth about this. Uh, I looked in, I've, I read Brenner, I read Wallerstein going into, into this. I was thinking about these two um, methods as we were putting this together. Uh, I will just say that uh, kind of his camps of historiography and being very uh, pick one or the other always rubs me the wrong way. I always think of history as kind of like, uh, I don't know, when you're looking at a map in a video game and you're toggling different terrain maps on so you can see different overlays. Uh, and each one is just a different filter through which different truths are elucidated. And mm -hmm. so you can kind of take different versions of analysis and look at the story they tell or how they shape the facts into a story and make your own conclusions from them. And the way that we ended up telling this is the one that makes sense to me, but I'll let Matt get more into exactly what this debate is and, and how he was synthesizing it, doing it. Um, right. Uh, so yeah, so it with analysis, the Wallerstein Brenner debate is this, is this argument about the origins of capitalism and broadly, whether it is to be found in uh, the specific uh, response of English agriculture to this crisis of like uh, uh, declining, um, declining agricultural productivity, you know, the defined European agriculture, by the time of the Black Death, uh, that's the Brenner theory that it's a, it's a it's a rural process uh, among about a transformation in agricultural production methods. Uh, Wallerstein uh, sketches out uh, capitalism in as part of the, the broader world systems critique of uh, and theory of of capitalism as a as a phenomenon of trade. Uh, emerging out of trade networks and out of trade relationships within Europe and between Europe and other parts of the world. Uh, and I absolutely believe that if you get to the very nitty gritty level, you can find things between these two theories that are fundamentally uh, uh, in conflict and cannot be resolved. But that's not the level of analysis that I need to operate on as a guy doing a history podcast. I can look at both of these questions and to me, see, they seem to be complementary. Mm -hmm. They seem to be telling the same story. I think that the Brenner thesis outlines how capitalism emerges as a practice that pushes out voluntary interactions with the market and turns them into mandatory in, uh, interactions with the market. I think that process is defined by Wallenstein and Wood or Brennan and Wood is, is persuasive. But I also think that how you get from there to capitalism being hegemonic first in Europe and then in the world is through the very trade networks that Wallerstein sketches out. And so this third hell on earth ended with us sort of 
wrapping up the the Brennan uh, argument for how uh, capitalism emerges in England. And next year, we're hoping to do a seven years war pod that talks about how that pro- how that state then exports capitalism. And it's going to be an affirmation of that Wallerstein thesis. But, you know, it's it's like from our perspective, or at least from mine, you know, that exportation would not be possible without this whole process of the 30 years of war. If yeah, you know, exactly. the Dutch don't become independent, if they if, you know, Spain's one way uh, uh, trade re- trade relationship with the new world doesn't collapse under the weight of the decli- its declining empire. If the, the Dutch don't then if the, the competition between the English and the Dutch doesn't then uh Force the rapid expansion of this worldwide trade around the around the world. Like like all these things are interlinked, even if the specific right. mode is and what's being built off. in the uh, the 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 grassy fields of England. And it's all kicked off really by by the Spanish because the Spanish introduced the concept of a hegemon to post Roman uh, Europe for the first real time mm-hmm. within it, as opposed to you know Huns or or Ottomans or something. And then by creating that, it creates. In the other uh, powers in Europe, a new orientation against Spain, and they start organizing against Spain, and that organization takes the 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 uh, form of, say, the Dutch rebelling, and then creating the modern uh, fucking joint stock company. Yes, and and it leads to this the the French uh, creating the first absolutist state, and and England gets constitutional monarchy. Meanwhile, Spain is stuck with the system that got them there. Because once in power, those forces just use their power to keep it and not change the system, meaning it cannot respond to any of this and it falls apart, breaks into pieces. And then uh, the French and the English feast on its corpse Mm -hmm. and Uh, America, of course. Yes. So I'm glad we got to those because, you know, from the very first episode, people were hooting and hollering in comments about uh, uh, Brenner and Wallerstein, to which... I also would say, you know, we will get to that. You know, we tried to set yes. up this whole series in a kind of elliptical way where we bring up, go up so far with something and then kind of loop back and move a little further. So, because um, the Seven Years' War is when you go from this post Spanish conflict where the French are, you know, they're in there too. And it's a back and forth. You got your Austrian succession, you got your Spanish succession. And then Seven Years' War, that's when it's all over. And England is going to become the dominant force for the next 200 years. Uh, but we'll get to that in many ways. All right, let's yes. go to our next question. And again, I'm watching the chat to see if any of you guys have questions there. Uh, this one's a little more uh, frivolous. Hey, guys. I love the show. Um, I'm going to Germany soon, and I'm wondering if I wanted to get a historical highlights tour of of the Thirty Years' War. What should I see in Germany? Thanks. That, by the way, was from Jacob D. The first two questions were by Charles W. and David S. Thank you, Jacob D., David S., and Charles W. So, historical highlights tour of Germany. Uh, You know, I was in Germany last summer. Uh, Obviously, or I just went to Berlin because, uh, you know, I wanted to uh, party on my honeymoon uh, rather than see a bunch of history stuff. And you know what? I have actually already seen the, um, the Czech uh, the, the Czech castle where they did the defenestration. But I was thinking about this. You saw this. the defenestration. Yes, of course. Uh, the, the blessed window. Um, but yeah, I was kind of looking into this. It, it's tough. There's not that much 30 years war stuff in Germany. What would you say? Matt? No, they mostly, uh, they didn't preserve most of the, the battlefields like uh, Brettenfeld, the battlefield of Brettenfeld. They had two major battles, including the first big uh, Swedish victory. 
there's an autobahn cutting right through it. <laughs> uh, in fact, it it like separates like from the t- from above. It separates where Tilly and uh, and the Swedes would have been. You know, I I've seen some pictures like if you really look hard, you can find some um still extant monastery ruins ruins where like you know the Catholics or the Protestants like or probably the Protestants if it's a monastery tore it down. Uh, one thing I will say that might be worth going is to the city of Heidelberg, where the Heidelberg Castle, where the seat of uh, you know Frederick V, where all that stuff was happening, where he was uh, dressing up as Germanic figures, saying that he was going to be the the savior of Germany. Um, you, you could see those ruins, and of course, in the basement of Heidelberg, there is uh, the Heidelberg Tun, one of the largest wine casks in all of Western uh, Europe. Um, that platform, I don't know if you can see here. I'll try to blow this up a bit. Uh, there's yeah. a person standing on top of it here. Yeah, it's like, it's gigantic. Yeah. All wine, too. Those wine track uh, palatinates. Yes. Palatines. Uh, so, if I guess if you go to one city, um, Heidelberg, you know, get, get a Heidelberg little... Heidelberg would be cool. I really want to go to Munich sometime. I would I like to go to there. Munich. Uh, but another good place to go, Munster, and see uh, St. Yes. Lambeth's Church and see the freaking cages where the, the bones of the Munster rebels, uh, the, the Anabaptist rebels were, were interned for centuries. Yes. They took the bones out, but they left the cages. Thank you to uh, the several people who sent us up, uh, who DM'd us photos of, of the, the Munster cages. Um, while I was taking a train from Amsterdam to Berlin, one of our stops was in Munster, and I was craning my neck out of the side of the windows to see if I could get a glimpse of the uh, the the cathedral, but I don't think I could see anything. But otherwise, I don't know. I I've, I've been to the big uh, Berlin twice, but I've never been to the German countryside, and I would I would like to go and take a more scenic trip of Germany because I'm sure there is some beautiful stuff there. Absolutely, and it will remind you of uh, your your birthplace. Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah, it's very Ohio-y. Yes. The nice yes. parts. And there are some. Thank you very much. Um, all right. Next question from our call-ins. This is from Ben J. Hey, Matt. Hey, Chris. My name is Ben. My question is, how was the Holy Roman Empire able to survive for another century and a half after the Thirty Years' War? What factors enabled it to maintain legitimacy and keep going as a sort of semi-coherent political unit after such a catastrophe. Thanks. Uh, essentially because the Habsburgs got buck broken by the 30 years war, <laughs> uh, the, the threat, the fear uh, of Habsburg dominance uh, that the office of the Holy Roman empire emperor rec- re- uh, represented for the princes of Germany, the sort of sort of Damocles that was sort of all over all their heads uh, in the 15 and 1600s. After Westphalia is imposed, it really kind of goes away, and, and uh, princes of Germany start competing against each other really on the same terms as they are with the rest of Europe. And that's why you see a bunch of wars inside the Holy Roman Empire uh, over the next couple hundred years. Like when, when Prussia goes to war with Austria, you know, that's all technically supposed to be within the Holy Roman Empire. <laughs> Uh, is there anything to Austria then turning east as the uh, as the Ottomans decline and kind of orienting their their yes. their empire towards you know Hungary and the Balkans in their yeah their the Habsburg period? the Habsburg family like that they lose they lose uh, the office of Holy Roman Emperor as a 
as a power projection point. They lose the Spanish freaking crown after the death of Char- Carlos the Bewitched and the, and the end of the war of uh, Spanish succession. So they're really kind of forced to look uh, east. And so then they become this more eastward focusing Austro-Hungarian empire where their insistence on holding on to those goddamn Balkans uh, sparks World War One. So mm-hmm. great job, everybody. Way to go. <laughs> more lessons from the Habsburg. Habsburg. Yeah. Yeah. Genius. Great work, which is so funny. He actually says in the book, like, oh, as a way to like, uh, show that I'm not a big, I'm not a scary fascist. I, I believe in multiculturalism. Uh, the Habsburgs were great at it. Like, yeah, they, they killed it. They <laughs> literally killed it. Um, all right, great. Uh, okay. We've got a hinge point question here. I will look at that in a second. Also from the chat, somebody said that the museum in Hamburg has a number of, uh, a lot of 30 years war stuff. Um, Hell yes. which was nice. So thank you to Hamburg, Joe. Uh, I would love to all these cities. I would love to do a tour. Let's just do a tour of Germany. We let's, let's just, just take tour this Germany, show, baby. Yeah, uh, this show on the road. We'll do it in front of uh, ten expats every place. Yes. Look, if they if they can put us up in a hotel and uh, pay for a meal, uh, I that's would really it. it. Yeah. Just uh, give me a pig knuckle. Let me yeah. hold a pig knuckle. Jam Akano through uh, doing history pods through Germany. Yes. Um, play all the places can play it in the seventies. Yes. Uh, all right. I am looking for questions in the chat again, uh, but here is our next call-in from Caleb K. Hey, Matt and Chris. Um, I loved hearing about how the advancements in communications technology changed the masses' conceptions of themselves and their communities in the early modern period. Um, What differences and similarities do you see between the printing press and the internet as tools for communication, and what Long-term response do you think capital could have to the internet um, like the old aristocracies had to the printing press? Uh, I'll take a stab at this first uh, mm-hmm. just to do the the broad categorical difference between the printing press and the, and the internet. Um, the printing press uh, made everyone a reader. The, intermi- the internet makes everyone a publisher. Uh, and that is the singular difference between this. Uh, you know, printing still required specialized skills. Uh, the internet uh, requires an internet connection, and then you can be read by theoretically everyone on the war in the world, or at least everybody with an internet cl- connection. And that is a categorical difference, and is doing this, going through the same process of breaking people's brains in a new and exciting and entertaining way. Uh, absolutely, yes. It's it's it's. Technology is taking a, a, a subjectivity that was previously held by a, a relatively small percentage of the population and is universalizing it. And uh, that means everyone has to reorient themselves. And in the process, we all go a little more insane. Uh, I mean, maybe a way to think about it is like the printing press made everybody for the first time feel like they could read and know the word of God. Uh, the internet makes everybody feel like they can write the word of God. Absolutely. Yeah. The, that, that, the, the idea that there's a distinction uh, has collapsed. Like so this, my point of view is, is God's eye, which, you know, it's true in one sense, but that's true of everybody. Then you need to chill out. Mm-hmm. You need to stop. Everybody doesn't need to know everything about everybody. Yes. All right, let's take some questions from the chat, which I had finally had some time to read, even if these were posted a few minutes ago. Um, here's something that I I probably can't answer. Maybe Matt does. We discussed the periphery powers during the Thirty Years' War, uh, but there was no mention of the Tsardom of Russia, which yeah. had an experience in extreme upheaval in the 17th century. 
Uh, any uh, thoughts? Forces. I know work. it's it's very uh, uh, that's a bummer because Russian history during this period is incredibly interesting. Uh, I mean, you've got a whole time during this thing, right around the time the Spanish that the uh, Thirty Years' War is, is brewing. You've got what is known in Russia as the time of troubles. Mm-hmm. When you have uh, the central authority fall, you have a successive uh, insurgent groups trying to claim the throne by saying that they were uh, that they had like uh, the lost son of the czar, Dmitri. And there are several false Dmitris who mm-hmm. come onto the scene to become czar for like five minutes before one of them got uh, uh, overthrown, killed. And his ashes were fired out of a cannon towards Poland <laughs> because he was considered a Polish uh, client. And you got the Polish. It's all fascinating. We didn't really have time to get into it, though. Uh, but, yeah, like you've got what, what you have in Russia is the same phenomenon happening all throughout Europe, but in a context of a wildly smaller population relative to, to the um, area uh, and <laughs> the phenomenon of interaction with the steppe culture of uh of the taters uh, <laughs> that's right the taters. the taters yeah uh the remnant of the old golden horde who uh, which is a relationship that none of the other european powers had and and uh you know they end up not going through that process that we're talking about in in our show until centuries later mm-hmm. they have uh they're essentially forced to modernize in order to compete with the other powers of the continent uh, uh, from scratch, not as part of an organic process of building like a bourgeois power in cities. It mm-hmm. doesn't occur. It's mandated by the state as a way to avoid being overrun. Uh, I would just like to thank Shredosaurus for making me laugh with when you find yourselves in times of trouble, false Dimitris comfort me. <laughs> That's, very, That's good. very good. Thank you, uh, Shredosaurus, for that. Yeah. Um, all right. One and the more. Romanovs end up winning. By the way, they, they, that's where the Romanovs come in. Yeah. To end the time of troubles, they're like, "All right, we'll, we'll we've got this," and they did forever. <laughs> All right. Uh, one more question from the chat before we get back to the calls. Here's a hinge point question. We love our hinge points, folks. Uh, everybody, tune in to Real Time with Bill Maher for Danny Bessner. Tonight. Yes, that's true. He's going to be on fucking Bill Maher. He's going to be. Issuing new rules. I'm I'm fifty fifty whether whether they butt heads or or get along like old bros. Uh, uh, I feel like Danny's going to want to defer to uh, to brother Bill. We'll see. He we'll could see. go in there and just try to dom him. I'm very interested to see how it goes. Yes. Uh, anyway, here's an his point question: What does it look like? And I will add to the askers question: Is it even possible if one of the other German states? Uh, Bohemia, the Palatinate, to the sense that it existed in the 19th century, is the one that ends up being the impetus behind a unified Germany in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, Yeah, that's one of those where it's just hard to imagine any points where a contingent event could kind of swing the gate there. wonder if Frederick the Great just explodes. One day. I get there. You go. Like, what if Frederick the Great, like, like you a know, cannon if, falls on his head when he's eighteen, or yeah, something. He, or uh, he he kills himself after they execute his boyfriend in yes. front of him, okay, which is what go. happened when he was a kid. Like, that's that's a that is possible, I guess. Yeah, like just take Frederick the Great out of the equation. Uh, maybe Bavaria. I don't know. Probably. I don't think the Palatinate could. I don't know how much it changes anything, though. I mean, eventually, it's just going to have to be the the more most effective military machine, mm-hmm. you know? So somebody's going to take that job up. And, you know, if it's not Frederick the great, it's going to be somebody else. I 
can't really add to that. I, th- that sounds about right. I, to my knowledge, like nobody else in the 18th and 19th century is developing the military dominance of Prussia. Yeah, they just put their whole bussy into it. They, they maxed all, all their it. sliders, all their, their XP yep. points into military. Yeah. Um, that's what you do. And oh, we haven't developed a, a capitalist economy with, with its, you know, uh, efficiencies. We'll just, yeah, go all in on army. It's yeah. It's like trying to win the military victory in, in Civ. You yeah. Know, you just have to, and you de- know what? Develop more. It, it worked. Yeah. They became, they became a power somehow. They became one of the, the great powers with the capital G of Europe. Amazing. All right. Back to the, the call in questions. This is Henry B. Hey guys, in the show, you talk about how the advent of print media news and most importantly, posting drove a lot of the social changes in the 17th century. My question is what writers from the time would have been the subject of the 17th century Chapo's reading series? Like who were the Megan McArdles and rods of the 30 years war era? Thanks. Uh, one guy who comes to mind is a uh, good old Hugo Grossius. <laughs> You kids, you kids down with Hugo Grossius. Um, uh, he was a uh, Dutch political theorist and uh, diplomat who essentially founded modern just war theory. Uh, he, he said, uh, actually, sometimes doing war against your Christian fellow Christians is good uh, when you have a good reason, uh, which coincidentally uh, are exactly all the reasons that the Dutch went to war for. Oh, my God. What a coincidence. <laughs> I think you can have fun busting his balls. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of like uh, one of those, the New York Times op-ed page for the Iraq war guys. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, we yeah. don't want to do this, but if we were to, to do it, the only just reason would be the exact reasons laid out by the U.S. government. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's like I'm inventing, I'm inventing a new type of ethics that just coincidentally is the uh, state interest of the Dutch Republic. Um, who is that guy with the crazy name who is doing all the uh, iconoclasm around Frederick's court in um, uh, Abraham Skultatus? I th- feel like Skultatus, the theologian at Heidelberg. Uh, I feel like uh, guys like Skultatus could kind of form like a Rod Dreher figure of the time. You know, yeah. these real fringe religious fanatics. Oh the, yeah, the, the wackos are would be very fun. I'm sure 17th century Chapo uh, would be uh, reading dispatches from the um, Gomerist uh, debates uh, and making fun of it. Yeah, it's like, oh, man, look at these Gomerists. Yes. Get out of here with this. Um, All the guys that we talked about in the John D. Live episode, uh, you know, who are around the court of Elizabeth, all these people publishing things about why their view of, you know, what to do with like the eel jetties. Um, in the, in the, or not, they're not jetties. It's a uh, eel, eel wind. traps. Yeah. Yeah. Weirs, weirs, weirs. eel weirs, which yeah, was a like huge a, issue a in domestic English politi- yeah. politics of like how many Who's going to have access to the, to the, to the eels. Who's yes. going to make the delicious eel pies. Uh, and I'm sure that there would be tracks in the day of being like, here's why the eels are deservedly. So for the Royal court houses that, most honorably serve the queen. And we're like, Oh, interesting. So that you, you happen to deserve the eels the most just because you're closest to the queen. Yeah. That's bullshit. The rest of us deserve uh, every American. Yeah. No matter how much the <laughs> ability to pay should have access to eels. The 1% of Queen Elizabeth's advisors have access to 99% of the eels. We should all be able after a hard day of work, uh, perhaps uh, as the town fool uh, or crier, uh, uh, perhaps as uh, as a donkey uh, herdsmith coming home, 
and being able to get a delicious eel pie out of the oven. Uh, so that something like that is what uh, you know, 17th century Chapo was. We uh, it would be funny to put together a half hour of of what our, our 17th century. Oh, you know who else would be uh, fa- regionally famous it- uh, itinerant preachers. Oh yes, those the, guys. The kind of guys who um, this would be like us when we do like New York City based stories. When we go in on like how uh, crazy Eric Adams is, it would be whoever like rolled into check out this guy. Oh I boy, mean, I, I guess we would be based in like London at the time. He you thinks- know, whoever rolled into London and is doing itinerant p- uh, preaching at the time. He says he's Jesus's nephew. Thanks for oh, that. By question. the way, one more thing about eels. Uh, it is alleged that King Henry the first of england died from gorging on eels it, it's hard to underemphasize how important eels were like the the entirety of the productive capacity of england was basically sheep and eels sheep and eels that was it that's the protein that's the commodity that's yeah. it i guess i would like to try an eel pie someday anyway next question thank i love you. McGarry. Mm. uh thank you henry beam Hi there. Uh, Hamilton from Colorado. First time, long time. One of the things I love uh, when I'm studying history, uh, especially once you kind of start to enter the like modern era, is just like, what, what the fuck's going on in the rest of the world, right? Like the world becomes kind of like more interconnected and this is sort of like the time where that starts to happen. So like what's, what's going on in uh, the new world? What's going on in Asia and Africa at this time? Uh, thanks. Uh, I know you have an answer to that, Matt, but I do want to say from the... Um the chat just about the last question the chaz of the time uh would be the munster rebellion and I, i'm sure that we would <laughs> yes, have been that talking was about absolutely the chaz of the day yes all right anyway what's going on in the rest of the world matt all right so let's uh let's do a little uh, start we'll go east from from europe uh we'll go west from europe across the ocean to the new world what's going on well for the most part north america you still have the vast majority of the land that is inhabited inhabited by uh indigenous americans living in tribal relationships, dominating the interior of the continent, uh, hugging the shore. You have North, uh, New England and the, the uh, religiously inspired but still commercially minded uh, uh, colonies there. You have the Jamestown colony, which is a, basically just a giant uh, death machine. It is a way to get rid of excess Englishmen, uh, but it is still having resources pumped into it. Uh, then you have the Spanish colonial project is happening all throughout the Caribbean and uh, Mesoamerica and uh, South America. The Little Ice Age effects are felt here less than elsewhere. Uh, and because there's less of that like fixed declining, re- uh, declining productivity agriculture already in place, it's less of, a, uh, of an impact. As we said, the death of all those people by, uh, exposed to uh, Eng- European Diseases might have contributed to the Little Ice Age mm-hmm. in the first But in New England, you're going to have the best off white people in Europe during this period, uh, where the actually caloric intake is going up as, re- as opposed to down everywhere else that Europeans lived. And that's because they're uh, actually making it. They're, their little cooperative farming communities are, are using the fact that they have this access to uh, this new world land that they can exporate. Uh, they're able to do pretty well for themselves. They're doing okay. Uh, but then you get to year, Asia, the exact same time that the 30 years war is happening. The uh, Ming dynasty is collapsing under the same process that we saw happen in Europe, just legitimacy destroyed by changing conditions. Uh, there's first, you have the victory of a uh, peasant rebellion, which is 
cyclically how uh, regimes changed in China. You, you lose the mandate of heaven. Some local pissed off peasant or mailman gets a bunch <laughs> of his friends together in the jungle. They start off as bandits. Or, I mean, in the hills, they start as bandits and they march down and they kick you off of the throne. Uh, but this rebellion was very quickly overwhelmed by an invasion of the Manchu uh, from uh, from on the other side of the wall who were invited in by a Ming general to help put down the rebellion. And then after that was too late, they just took the whole place over uh, the, the great uh, kind of uh, uh, rhymes with um, with, you know, the Habsburgs and Wallenstein there, you know, bringing in a, a general that you need to help to to calm things down in your warring population and then uh, kind of losing control of them, except the Manchu end up winning that war instead of Wallenstein. Yeah, and it's a huge bloodbath. It takes decades, partially because they insist on everybody, cut all males shaving the front of their hair and wearing pony pigtails in the back cues in the Manchu style. And because they insist on that, it causes like an extra 10 years of rebellions. <laughs> they have to put it down the, the haircut uh, war. It was a haircut war. They eventually are able to, to, to dominate and they hold on till, uh, till 1905. Uh, but like there, that is part of the little ice age crisis. We've <laughs> talked with uh, Derek about what the Ottomans were up to during this period. They were having their own cycle of rebellions overthrows ex, uh, murders of, of sultans paralysis of the of the central authority for the same reasons uh in 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 india the mughals uh, are fighting with each fighting for dominance of the continent but uh uh are are pretty stable and in japan uh the little ice age is kind of rid out ridden out more uh peacefully because all the big violence of you know bringing together a, a single like sort of quasi rational state in Japan had already occurred uh, in the late uh, 1500s culminating in the uh, creation of the Takagawa Shogunate uh, and it's this early Takagawa Shogunate that uh, demilitarizes Japanese society and takes the samurai class and turns them into civil servants and uh, like by making them into uh, teachers and uh, like firefighters mm -hmm. in Tokyo, in Edo and uh, in uh, Africa, you have the establishment of the trade networks between local uh, African powers and European colonialism. That's going to build the uh, slave trade. Uh, it, re it really is, you know, I did this simultaneous crisis all over the world and then the mold of Europe seeping its little tendrils into every single part yep. of the world. It's being like a, like a, like one of those uh, coronal ejections from the sun. Yeah. The pressure of the 30 years war is shooting these people out into the Atlantic and then down to Brazil and, and, and Senegal and, and Cameroon and, and the Cape mm -hmm. and, and then just settling these trade networks just to fuel their conflict, to fuel their holy war. Great work on that one, Matt. Uh, let's keep moving through these. Again, I'm keeping my eye on the uh, the chat um, for there was something in here that made me that made me laugh, but uh, I can't find it again. People roasting you for Moogles, but uh, which again Fuck don't you. care about pronunciation, but Moogles is is pretty funny. Moogles, um, Moogles. I don't know. Moogles. I don't know how to pronounce Indian. Come on, man. You know what? I you could tell what Moogles. he was saying. I think they're the Moogles. Fuck off. Anyway, we'll move on to the next call in question. Keeping the eye on the chat for if there are any chat questions. I've got one more from the chat way back, which would be a good way to end this this uh, question section. But here is um, <laughs> I, I usually don't do full names to protect identities, but I have to say it tickled me when I saw I got a question from uh, Edward Nugent. Uh, so here's from uh, Ted Nugent. 
uh, asking us a question. Hey guys, amazing job on the show. It seems like the historical import of the Thirty Years' War is not really who won any given battle, but that necessitated by the morass of the war, you have important new state capacities and financial structures being built as Europe gradually approaches Westphalia. But do you think there were any hinge points or singularly influential figures that might have taken the war in a different, maybe more decisive direction, or could have even stalled or changed the emergence of capitalism? Thanks, guys. Uh, I, I don't think at, at that point, I feel like the 30 years war uh, is a reckoning with the death of a feudal system. Like it, it, it has to end with this death rattle for the very simple reason that the states that were adopting capitalist practices were just better at competing in this new framework. Like the Dutch were able to fight so hard above their weight, punch so high above their weight, and that the countries that couldn't change just languished. And I think that 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 means there is no faction within the people who fought over the German lands during the Thirty Years' War that could have brought any better than was assembled, like the mechanisms and powers of the state to to win. I mean, they had thirty years for a victor to emerge. And the whole realization of the war is that that uh, position had been eroded by a change that nobody saw coming or understood as it was occurring. Uh, yeah, the end of the Thirty Years' War, the Treaty of Westphalia, is a little bit uh, like Adrian Veidt at the end of Watchmen. Like you fool, you think I would explain the change if it if it's still time time to happen? You idiots! I did it thirty years ago. Exactly. You know, Boom. Yeah, it's, it's like the, the chain had the change had already occurred. This is just fighting out over the the scraps. I think that the right. big the big one is obviously if um if Gustavus Adolphus wins. Right. If he doesn't die. And I think that in my mind that like let's say he wins and wins literally every single battle that he is in for the rest of his time in the continent. I, I, that kind of in my mind just transitions the orientation of the Holy Roman Empire from Vienna to Stockholm. But right. I don't think greater processes necessarily change. No, I mean, you maybe you have like a, a Prussian dominance of Germany, but it's Swedish instead of Prussian, you know? Yeah. But it's still going to take the same agonizing process into coming into being because, you know, those, those, those dust, those debt, uh, sandy hills of Pomerania and the Baltic area is still just uh, demographically behind the eight ball. You know, they're just yeah. not going to be able to dominate and, and accelerate a process that's happening geographically elsewhere. All right. From the chat, would Martin Luther be a Twitter guy or a Reddit guy? Oh, God, both. I mean, I don't think those those things are exclu mutually exclusive. I think there are people who uh, put their whole heart into posting both places. And if there's anyone alive who could do that, it would be Martin Luther. I think I think that Luther would get too addicted to the rapid fire pithiness of Twitter and he would just end, end up there. He would be constantly in seven different uh, arguments like the ability for the rapid dissemination and rapid response of Twitter, I think would fry Luther's Luther's brain from what I know. That's the thing is that it would fry his brain. Like yeah. I can't imagine him being even in a medium term, a Twitter guy. He's one of those guys who gets into an insane, uh, uh, flame war and then like posts his dick and then you never hear from again <laughs> like like a guy who does suicide by cop after <laughs> they don't get posting, fame star yes. posts anymore like he could not 
he could not hang in that uh, area. He would oh, stimulate his mind into oblivion. He would just be like the he would be the 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 rat in the experiment, just destroying his pleasure center. <laughs> Nailed his dick to the wall. Yes, exactly. Neuromantic. <laughs> All right, we got yeah. a few a few more um, few more calling questions. Keeping an eye on the chat. Here's one from uh, Pepe T in Spain. Hi guys, um, this is Pepe from Madrid. I wanted to ask about, um, well, I think you briefly touched on it on the podcast, uh, but I wanted uh, to know if you guys could expand on the hypothetical of Philip II of Spain and Mary of England actually being able to uh, succeed in the counter-reformation in England and produce an heir and what that would have meant for both the development of capitalism, but also I think uh, really interestingly on colonialism in America. Uh, just to give Matt a chance to think about that, I would like to start this off by saying uh, shout out Spain. Uh, thank you, for Pepe, for sending this in. Uh, we got another email recently from a Spanish listener who just wanted to say that they enjoyed the show and also politely request that we cover do some coverage of Spain uh, coming up. Um, Matt is working on a Spanish history podcast that will come out soon. Um, yes. And we'll figure we should figure some way to talk about Euro- European politics in general other than the perfidious Anglos. Um, hey, get out of here. But um, uh, so shout out to all our Spanish listeners and thanks for getting in touch and thanks for uh, giving this call. Call. So what do you think, um, Matt? Uh, Philip II and Mary, let's say they end up having a 30-year marriage or something like that, producing an heir. Yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, I think you just see the intensification of the conflicts within English society just break out maybe more violently and earlier uh, because... Uh, there's no way that a uh, fully Catholicized England does not step into the European like s- confessional wars with both feet, you know? Mm-hmm. So that means you're going to have like a real military expenditure dominating the European, the English economy, which is going to piss off all those little nascent Protestants in the cities. And they're going to uh, resist. Uh, I mean, if there was going to be anything that threw off, the timeline of capitalist development though, that would be it Mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, is there a way to say that like, you know, maybe the English civil war comes 80 years earlier. Yeah. Yeah, Much earlier. Maybe in parallel with the Dutch revolt and maybe the English and Dutch link up the English and Dutch Protestants link up. Yeah. And they become like a separate year 1600 or something. Yeah. And they become like a separate state somehow. Like they get some sort of chunk of England. Yeah, and but even with the any juice added by what England's wool exports, like Spain's still going to be a declining power. They're not going to be able to hold on to both England and it, it's interesting. Well, no, to play well, out. the thing is, if if that happens, what what France would do is the real question. Yeah, uh, like that would that would require some sort of full scale uh, uh, French offensive that they would have to do all of that in the face of, as well as the rebellion of their of their Dutch and English. Uh, uh, towns dwellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so thank you, Pepe, for that uh, question. Um, let's do two more call-ins and a few more of the chat questions. Here is Sage B. Hi, Chapo. First time, long time. Reverb. Y'all have done a really great job laying out the social forces, political movements, and technological advancements that uh, drove and caused the Thirty Years' War, as well as laid out some of the like high-level troop movements and politics within the military. But what I'm really interested in is what do like what does it look like to be a infantryman out in the field? What are the unit tactics of a big battle in the Thirty Years' War? 
Thanks. Uh, well, the main uh, format uh, that the war that's uh, is dominant when the war begins is the uh, tercio, which is this formation that the Spanish had uh, had through long uh, trial and error had come to uh, develop as a way to incorporate gunpowder into modern warfare, and it was a big squ- block of dudes all squeezed together uh, and in, roughly divided in thirds. A third of them having uh, muskets, a third of them having swords and, and small shields, and a third of them with a big ass fucking pike. And they would march towards their opponent and they would fucking try to push them uh, off of their position with their pike. It was called the press of pike. And it was what de- determined like the momentum at the center of a battlefield. You'd have an artillery engagement beforehand to set it up. And then you'd have often at the wings, you would have the, the cavalry kind of uh, harrying and attacking the flanks. Uh, and uh, not a lot of people died relative to uh, later warfare because even the uh, firearms were uh, not that reliable or fast to use. Uh, but by the end of the war, there'd been a big change in those uh, tactics, thanks in large part to the Swedes showing up interspersing their cannons with their uh, infantry and concentrating uh, rifle fire. Uh, By the time of the English Civil War, though, uh, firearms are getting better. They're getting more prevalent. And the um, ratio is now like two-thirds guns and a third pike. Uh, There's also a funny detail that always stays with me related by Mike Duncan. Shout out Mike Duncan, guest of the show on uh, his English Civil War episode talking about the nature of war, uh, where, you know, this is also unpleasant and the motivation to actually do it on the ground is so low that often if they were further enough, for far enough away from their captains, when two lines of pike would meet each other, there would be a kind of spoken or even unspoken agreement that they would just kind of wave their pikes at each other from like yeah, close quarters and not actually try to stab each other, but just basically like play act, you know, like bang, 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 bang your pikes for a while hoot and holler at the other line and then turn around and run back after a while. Um, yeah. It's looking so, like you're working. Well, because of course the person monitoring you is some noble asshole on a horse a half mile away and there's no binoculars or anything. Well, there I, I can't say that for sure. There's like te- early telescopes or whatever. Nobody can tell what you're doing when you're down in the, in the the mud. Waiting there's no supervisors. Yes. It is wild. 30 years of war's battles would have guys with guns and there'd be artillery and also suits of armor, like yes. full plate armor for the, for the officers run, w- wielding freaking maces while people are shooting guns at one another. It, it really, really does. Is like you're a halfway point. It's like the suspended weird liminal space in history. And we'll get to that a little bit more in one second. Uh, one more from the, the chat. It's funny to think about Germans having an epigenetic trauma from the 30 years war, but do you think the stereotypical darkness of German folktales and literature, like the original Grimm Brothers series, brutal, violent children's stories, etc., can be cr- traced back to the hell period you guys covered? Great I mean, question. Yes, I think Very so. good question and absolutely the case. Because when you consider that this is, the, the time that this, this pl- country is being butchered is also when we're seeing the emergence of uh, mass popular culture for the first real time. Mm-hmm. So what, what is the subject? It's, it's people getting uh, their guts pulled out while hanging from a tree. Yes. It's villages being burned. 
uh, the witch trials and stuff. And I do, you know, it, you started this question by saying it is funny to think of Germans having epigenetic trauma from the Thirty Years' War. Uh, I, the more I've read about this and, and encountered like modern German discussions about this time period, I really do think that this is this is more than World War II, kind of like the this the the supernova thing that births German consciousness. Obviously, like for the most modern, and again, I can't speak as accurately to other Germans. Now, obviously, the most modern Germans, that is going to be the thing that they think of the most. But but it really does seem like this is the trauma that creates the German personage. Yes, uh, absolutely. Like the tormented stormy soul is unleashed by the horrors of this war. It's captured in its printed culture that is transmitted. Uh, and then it gets a vessel thanks to the uh, the uh, Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the invasion the invasions of german lands by the french army kickstarts this process of national ego formation around this romantic uh traumatized soul uh because hurt people hurt people <laughs> and that's what we really need to take away from this all right one more call in question and then we're going to go to um to very final thoughts and what's next um this is mostly for us to spin up things that we, we Matt and I have been fantasizing about. But here is Connor J. G'day, lads. I'll keep it short and sweet for you. Uh, my question can be summed up in three words. Early, modern, gambo. Yes or no? Let's go. Yes. Thank you, Connor. Absolutely. Connor we would, Matt and I fantasize about uh, what it would look like to actually turn this period into some kind of a, a series or movie or something we have throughout the entire pro- uh, process we have lamented that there is not enough media about this and you know I was thinking about this just when Matt was talking about you know the battles where you would have guns cannons swords pikes knights in armor like doing it well would be potent- like amazing in 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 how cool you could make this period you know yeah no it's it's and and you Treat the religiosity of the people yes, this is the, uh, the way thing. that magic appears in the Gambo world. Like mm-hmm. Christianity is, is is the magic. Like yes, you subjectively uh, reflect their experience of a magical world. Yes, I mean when I think about it, I think of things like you know the 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 weirwood trees crying in Gambo, or that scene in um, uh, True Detective when McConaughey looks to the skies and the birds yeah, form a the spiral birds turn into the spiral. Yeah. Yeah, it would be stuff like that. You would have to have like literal magic in certain ways, you know, and it would might be somebody like somebody stuff like somebody praying in a cathedral and like a single beam of sunlight goes through a stained glass window and illuminates only them, you know, stuff like that. Things that are subtle but real that a person in that time could imagine being a, a literal manifestation of God or uh, when the powder keg blows up at um, not uh, Magdeburg, Winfim, it would be the thing that people would see is not like, oh, if you squint at this cloud, it looks like the Virgin Mary. No, it would be a cloud into a perfect statue replica of the Virgin Mary in the sky, right. like something yeah. recognizable as like, oh, this is a miracle, you yes. know, and that would be the, the spiritual level. And I think that you would do kind of the political intrigue, you know, the top level like courts and palaces and the generals and the fields and stuff. And then the other thing that I think you would need is the low level. And this, I would take a lot of like the simplicitous, simplicitous, simplicitous stuff and have 
you know, parallel tracks of just common people moving through this period. You know, I think Matt, Matt, you had come up with an idea of like, maybe it's like two brothers from central Germany and one goes to join the Imperials and one goes to join the uh, Protestants and you kind of track them. The idea I had was, yeah, it's two brothers in, in like a town in, uh, in like B- northern Bavaria or something, and uh, or Bohemia, and the uh, the the one the, when the armies march, the imperial army march is is being raised up. One of them just like the I'll go join the army, and then uh, the other one who is of course the nerd, the indoor kid, you know, the the, the literate one uh, who is aware of like the Rosicrucians and it's like read the Rosicrucian texts when the uh, a Protestant army shows up and they're going to like uh, ramp rampage through their ho- home. He convinces them, the the officers that he is a Rosicrucian. Mm. And then he, he gets like, like kind of bullshits his way up into all the like way the court. to the uh, Heidelberg court. Yeah. Yes. Just in time for white Martin Martin when his brother shows up. Yes. Okay, great. Anyway, we have ideas about this. Um, maybe in like a decade, you'll you'll see yeah. that somebody has put this together, and you'll know ah, we're behind it. We'll do uh, it in we'll do it in mid journey. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, maybe honestly, you know if who it knows? Get, yes, if it gets it this, out. This 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 help this pell mell pace of life these these days. Who knows what's gonna happen? But you know, it's on you, fans, for whenever we we um whenever anything thirty years war related comes up smash that fucking like and subscribe and not just from us from anyone out there who's doing Absolutely. this show that there is an audience if uh, there's a broadway musical about yeah. wallenstein go see it yes uh we'll ponder the orb until then you you watch the skies we'll watch the orb <laughs> okay final question that i took from the chat bring us back down and do a little more serious on the way out do you feel like doing this series has elucidated our current moment and helped you understand what's coming next or is it reinforced how impossible it is to see our future. Yeah, that's what definitely being humbled before like the totality of historical movement. Like we really have convinced ourselves that we have an ability to to tune in, you know, to to understand what's happening far beyond our actual capacity. Like we are filling in so much just like these people were. Uh and but you know, we have no other choice but to operate from some assumed understanding of the world around us, but the things that are changing it are just so massive and are occurring at such a scale that we really do like with any kind of perception of the universe, live at the exact wrong size. <laughs> like to understand we're supposed to understand the world ourselves, uh, uh, our historic historical trajectory, the, the, the natural realms around us and all of the meaningful action occurs either at the atomic level or at the galactic level, neither of which we can actually observe. <laughs> so we're just fucking making shit up. Mm-hmm. And that's what I got from, uh, from this is like, you can look back and see and recognize, you know, the shapes and, and, and re- lay them over your own patterns of life and like find a resonance there so that you can like make sense of the way that living in this world makes you feel. Uh, but you can't know where it's headed. Uh, yeah, I agree. It's, um, the the long term result of what all these people were building, even though they thought that they were fighting over, uh, you know, whether God is the bread or the bread is God, or you know whether or not you should have a rail or a stained glass in your church or whatever, or you know your parliamentary, you the rights of Englishmen in the parliament or whatever, what they were actually building would be so 
horrifying to them if they knew what was coming that it really just brings back to me that you have to live you have to focus on to what thinking what what you can about the now and understanding mm-hmm. what you can around what and knowing forming your feelings forming your instincts uh trusting your gut around the moment rather than what you think the future is going to hold mm-hmm. if that makes Precisely. sense no totally all right well let's move into the wrap-up portion of this wrap-up stream uh the first thing that i want to do is tease some merch which will also be coming out wednesday we are doing a drop of some designs from ben clarkson who did the animation that you see right behind you uh let's see if these are at all visible i'm gonna blow this up uh look at these hell on earth shield standard uh this is the coat of arms design and this is the hell on earth soldier design uh, these are going to be available in a crew neck and t-shirt, uh, cream and black. Um, we're trying to get some red ones available. I really want to get some red, uh, ink on a black, uh, crew neck. We'll see. You got to buy these first. The way that our new shipping, our new, uh, shipping company works is that you have to, um, do pre-orders. Like once this goes live, there'll be probably like a two week window to get your orders in and then they'll just manufacture everything that we ordered. So, uh, those will go up, uh, very soon. Uh, and Oh, also let me scroll down. What are these? Oh, hell on earth hats, Zapata oil t-shirts, Zapata hat. The Zapata hat is Zapata. 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 We got the Zapata hat. See again, pronunciation. We get the freaking Zapata hat. Um, so, on Wednesday, new merch drops. Go out and buy some Hell, Hell on Earth stuff. Uh, if this sells out, we'll hopefully be able to get some new colorways going. I can't wait to, to walk around. Oh, and something very important to me. Notice that nowhere on here does it say a podcast or a Chapo Trap House or anything. It just says Hell on Earth, Semper Finis Mundi. It's always the end of the world. Uh, so nobody has to know that you're listening to a dork ass or you're wearing dork ass podcast swag. So that is my other big announcement. Uh, as I said earlier, the the soundtrack will be live on Wednesday. I'm very excited to get that out. Shout out to all our talented people who made that happen. Uh, you'll be able to get to know them and their work. It'll all be linked on the Bandcamp page. Oh, one last thing before we go out. As we did last time, last time we did one of these hell out hell, um, wrap-up screams, we teased Hell on Earth itself. Should we tease what's coming uh, down the pike from us now? Yes, let's do it. So uh, this summer, it's probably going to... I'm shooting for maybe like July. We'll see. Uh, and it, it, when, a, when a schedule... When a, opening appears in our schedule of uh, bonus content i'm gonna slip in a mini series just me uh on the spanish civil war uh so it's gonna be uh, inebriated past because it's just gonna be me but i'll probably write it mostly uh and so that will be like maybe three four episodes I'm not sure yet uh and that'll come out this summer and then hopefully what we want to do say, for next year i would say aim for september for that one okay good give me more time i'll, I'll use it uh and then next year sometime, we're going to get back in the saddle for the Seven Years' War, which is another amazingly important and underexplored topic that, what's this, also uh, tells the story of the, uh, the dominance, the global dominance of capitalism. I think I cracked a way to organize that just thinking about it, and I'll see what you think about it. And I, well, why not just riff it out here? Uh, wonder if each episode focuses on one theater of it so you start yeah. you start with the french and indian war in the colonies and mm-hmm. then you go to 
maybe touch in on Europe and then you maybe go to India or something like that. Yeah. And we could, we could organize it around like one character. Yes. Like we could do George, we could do George Washington for the uh, French and Indian war. Frederick, Frederick the great, of course, for the European war. Who else, who else are you going to, you, there's nobody else for the European fat. Then there's maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you do um, Clive of India for the Indian, uh, uh, part of it because we need to talk about that whole thing and, and where that leads to uh yeah i think that could work we'll we'll figure it out we need to figure out what the 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 overriding thesis of the whole thing is and also what its name is i'm running out of hell yeah we're the problem of, of going hell, hell on right earth there. is that you kind of can't go uh higher oh another theater the high seas talk about do a whole yes, episode on piracy you yes. got to do a whole thing about the golden age of piracy i was kind of shit. thinking of making it just hell on earth Two, hell on the high seas Hell on the high seas. Yes. Maybe, maybe. But there's so much ah. other stuff that you got to talk about. Anyway, I, I got to take a, a, a break from reading in general. Yeah, so, no, I get it. So I, I'll probably have, dive I, into that I'm this compelled, fall. so I'll keep doing it. But you take a break. I also personally have a vague idea for a, uh, a history series that would kind of combine movie mindset and the hell of this series. The final synthetic perfor- uh, product, yes. Yes. Um, Again, I don't want to give up, give too away on, but too much away on. But but I have a vague idea of doing something that's basically tracing the material history of Hollywood. So it's like the business history of Hollywood and how that affects the movies that you see, with the overall yes. theory that movies are. We all know movies are dreams, correct? What yes. I entertain is that they are, in fact, not just the dreams of their creators, but the dreams of the capitalist mode of production that produces them. You know, it's true. And, and because, what they say yeah. is part of how they're made, which is part of the business decisions behind them, which is part of the industrial process of creating art. Uh, that one would be called uh, Hell of a Picture. <laughs> so we'll see if that ever happens. That would probably be like two years from now. Yeah, I do think that's a really good idea, though. I'm very excited about it. Um, all right. Well, that's what's coming up. More to come. All great. Let's leave out on this. I don't think you've heard this yet, Matt. This is the, final-, the final version now. Uh, We're going to leave you with this. This is something that Will gave out as an idea. and uh, Catherine, I believe. Catherine Catherine had the idea. Will told it to us. We sent it over to Charles Austin, the music maestro of episode one. Um, Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, More history to come. Stick around for Movie Mindset. That series is... Look, if you are a movie head, the Movie Mindset series is fucking crack. That thing is Will and Hessa firing on all cylinders. Uh, giving you four hours of movie content takes in a two-hour podcast, uh, just in terms of how fast they're going. That's going to be a fun one. But we'll leave you out with this. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, 17th century version.
Shout out Charles for putting that together to us. That will be available on the soundtrack as well. Um, can you, the 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 actual song is like twice as long. He really yeah, that's, that's like a six minute long song in real I life. I write like three verses. I'm like this is too much stuff. Yeah, Billy, I, I'm glad. That, I get it. You went to college. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm glad we kept that three minutes. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, everybody. Uh, we'll see you in September in Spain. Uh, this has been Hell on Earth. This has been Chris and Matt signing off. <laughs>